Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all the way up in the balcony. Wow, I think something's going on here. I'll try and keep looking to my left. Every once in a while, I might look to my right, just out of habit. But if you take your Bible, please go to Genesis chapter 3. And turn there as we continue our series in Kingdom, the story. Questions, who is God? What is he like? Who am I? What is my purpose? And what is life all about? You know, too seldom we get ourselves the opportunity to really think on these questions with all the busyness of life until maybe a crisis hits. Last Wednesday, I got a phone call from one of my neighbors, uh, neighbors to my mom who is 94 years old and still lives on her own, that they had found my mother um, unresponsive. So uh, needless to say, we got there in a hurry. Other family members got there in a hurry. Um, she was breathing. We put her on the um, couch in her living room. And uh, more and more families, uh, family members arrived over the next hour or two. And um, she started to revive. And by the end of the evening, be, be okay. I spent the night uh, at her place, uh, sleeping close to her bedroom on a foamy mattress, and she woke up in the morning like nothing had ever happened. And, uh, you know, giving commands to her oldest son like, um, like the past. So, um, but I, I, I won't forget, it's so fresh in my mind how surreal it was in those moments on Wednesday night when we thought this was it. Like, this is... A life we've known, I've known for my whole life, that's about to transition. And boy, you better know what story you believe in those moments. You better have asked yourself those questions and come up with a satisfactory answer as to who God is and what is he like and who am I? What is my purpose? We saw last week as we started in this grand story in the beginning of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that there is a uniform story here that's united across its pages that speaks to all of life and answers some of these amazing and deep questions that we have. And it begins right from the start. So we're looking at Genesis again this morning, and Genesis is widely believed to have been written by Moses, uh, after Israel has been in captivity in Egypt for like 400 years, they have by osmosis, osmosis absorbed the, much of the culture of Egypt. And in Egypt, there was all kinds of different worship to different gods, idol worship. And as Moses writes, he knows that Israel needs to know their true God and how he is different from the gods in which they live in Egypt. So the Genesis creation story, starting in Genesis chapter 1, was not written so much to be a scientific manual or textbook, to, but to reveal the who of creation. This is your God, and this is what he is like as he is revealed in what he has made. And we saw last week that God is all-powerful. I mean, he speaks, he creates out of nothing. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He's all-powerful. But in his power, we saw these things. God is good. His creation, he makes it and he says, oh, that's good. He makes something else, oh, that's good. God is good. And we found that we are most valuable to him as human beings, that we were the crown of his creation. We're so valuable to him and that 
All of our life has purpose because he commissioned mankind with a role to play, to actually co-labor with God in his creation. So this is life in the garden that we saw, Genesis 1 and 2. Life the way it's supposed to be, right from the start. Mankind ruling with God, under God's authority. Life is as it should be, relating well to one another, relating well to God, relating well to creation. This is the kingdom of God. God's people in God's land under God's rule. But the story takes a turn. Genesis 3. Man was incredibly privileged. We've seen how he was crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over everything that's made on the earth. However, that privilege comes with limits. Man is still a created being, completely dependent on the disposition of his creator. And God is good and he gives him all kinds of freedom. You can do this, you can eat that. There's just one thing, one limitation. And we read it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve are free. They have true freedom. True freedom to choose whether to obey God or to reject God. And you know the story. It reads in verse 1 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said this to the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice how the temptation when it comes, it centers on God's word and the authority of God's word to us. And I imagine when this question was asked, it was asked in a derogatory way, a a, a skeptical way. Did God, like, did he actually say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Of course, it's exaggerated. But a seed of doubt is being sown here. And you probably know what comes to your mind sometimes in your thinking and your relationship with God. Like, does God really mean what he says? Is that true? Do I really have to obey that? Am I not? Is not this situation an exception? Did God really say? Eve is pretty clear on her understanding, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So the tempter now attacks directly the truthfulness of God, the truthfulness of his word, and the goodness that lies behind the word, the limitation that God has spoken. Verse four, but the serpent says to the woman, You shall not surely die. In other words, God's a liar. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, God is keeping something from you. And this is so often the nature of temptation. It's a question around the goodness of God. Is God really good? Or maybe he's withholding something from you. The reasons why there's limitations there is that God knows you would enjoy that. It'd be good for you. And God doesn't want that for you. Is God good? If he is, then his boundaries will be good for me too. The other part of temptation in this comes around identity. You will be like God, the serpent says. And yet, as we've already read in the story, they already are aren't they? 
They are created in the image of God. Who is God? Who are we? We have seen the answer to that is already given in Genesis chapter one and two, as it should be. But that is now being put to the test. Will they let God define good and evil and the boundaries of who they are, or will they grasp for more? In rejecting him, verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You know, when we are tempted, it can, like it can look so good in the moment, right? And it, it can taste, it can feel good in the moment but so often we have no idea or we blind ourselves or we shut out the, the consequences that we know are to follow. I don't think Adam and Eve had any idea what was to come. It says in verse seven, then the eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Something's changed. The innocence of Adam and Eve that they possessed walking freely in the garden is now lost and what results in following is just shamefulness. They're ashamed. And they, they, they try to hide themselves. They cover up with fig, fig leaves. And they even tried to hide from the presence of God, his presence which they, had, which they had freely enjoyed. Now God has to go looking for them because they are hiding. As we've read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we've seen how good God is and how he values us it set us up to realize not only how tragic this disobedience is in Genesis 3, but how utterly foolish it is. Adam and Eve's act is an act of treason. They have rejected the rule of the king creator God in an attempt to bring about self-rule. What happens here is often referred to as the fall of man and the consequences, consequences of it are massive. As you read on in chapter three, what was created good now incurs God's curse. So the kingdom of God and the experience of it, the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to enjoy now perishes for them. And instead what is good becomes cursed. This is why when you go on a holiday and you're just so enjoying yourself and then you have one day left, you begin to feel all these lousy feelings. It's like a wet jacket's been put on you because you know you're going back to work that might be difficult and hard. See, work will be difficult. The ground, God says, will be cursed. This is why there's pain in childbirth, something that our family is all too familiar with now recently. There's pain in childbirth. This is why there's friction so often, difficulty in relationship between man and women. This is the result of Adam and Eve, the consequences of their rejection of God's rule in their life. They were created in God's image, created to worship and relate, to be satisfied in that. How foolish. Instead, there's brokenness and shame and separation from God. There's immediate separation, spiritual death, and what is to follow now will be also physical death. How did this happen? How did this happen? Adam and Eve's life is forever altered in the negative because of this choice. See, they chose to believe a different story. Rather than believing God is good, they chose to believe a story where God is not good. 
and where they need to be something different, something else than God has chosen them to be. And the ripple effect of their treason touches us right now, where we live today. Mike Cosper, he's written a book about the church's worship. He says that every crime, personal and corporate, private and public, grows out of this common root. From sex trafficking to genocide, adultery to petty theft, life with God is rejected and life without God embraced. The bite from the fruit is truly the kiss of death. You know, every once in a while as we go through this series, we're we can't help ourselves but flash forward, you know, to other parts in the Bible and, and speaking so clearly about what happened here. We read in Romans chapter 5 these words, speaking of Adam, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The fact that Adam sinned shows that the fact that we all sin, we, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all choose at times to self-rule, not to come under God's rule and disobey. As foolish as that is. As someone put it, Adam sneezed and we all caught a cold. You know, as you read great stories, so often looking back, you see there's been a foreshadowing early early in the story that connects to something later in the story. We see a bit of that in Genesis chapter 3. When God speaks to the serpent, he says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That, those last two phrases there, he shall bruise your head and he shall, you shall bruise his heel. A lot of people see that as a foreshadowing of what is gonna happen with Jesus Christ and Satan. That Jesus will be the serpent crusher. Another foreshadowing is seen in God's work in verse 21. It says there, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, the way that Adam and Eve tried to cover up wasn't enough. So God, in his mercy, kills an animal. It's the first killing of an animal that we know about. Blood is shed so that there can be a skin, so that there can be a covering up of their shame and nakedness. Something that so clearly seems to be a picture of what Jesus will do in the shedding of his blood to cover up our shame through what he accomplished on the cross. So we see the the shadows of the mercy of God in this already, and we see that God is merciful in that the earth will still rotate on its axis. Mankind will still breathe. Mankind will still exist and live for a while. But he is expelled from the garden. He will die physically And life from now on will be a mixture. This is what we would expect if the kingdom story we're talking about through these weeks is true. Justin Buzzard, in his book, The Big Story, writes, every person on the planet believes some sort of story to help them make sense of life. The world and how it all works, whatever story you believe, though, needs to account for all the pain in this world. And there's a lot of pain in this world, isn't there? I mean, don't you know a lot of pain personally? Um, You may be in pain right now. It may be relational pain. It can be physical pain. Um, Maybe someone close to you is, is really going through it, whether it's relationally, physically, emotionally. Like we are, we are not immune from pain. It surrounds us. 
You watch the news because they really focus on bad news. We see all kinds of pain in our world, people that are so mistreated, horrible and horrific things that are going on in our world. There's pain. The kingdom story makes sense of that pain. It expects us. You see, from Genesis 3, we know there, there will be now a mixture of good and bad. Although we were made in the image of God, we see that in Genesis 1 and 2, and we were created to reflect God's glory, and, and we were given all kinds of ability to do that. Morality, we're given creativity, we're, we can rationalize, we can think, we can make, we can create, we can do good things. We have not lost our capacity to do good now that sin is in the world. So there is good things because we're created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis once said, you have never talked to a mere mortal. All of us are made in the image of God. But, but because of Adam, we are all flawed. See, the, the sin that was from without now is a sin that is inherent within this creates a world where good and evil are constantly in conflict with one another, coexisting together. It's exactly what we would expect in the kingdom story. As we go on from Genesis 3, we see that the kingdom story illustrates that for us only too well. You can turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. It says there at the beginning, now Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. The story makes this distinction because what's going to follow is it talks about the sacrifices that these two brought to God. Abel, as a keeper of sheep, brings an animal sacrifice to God. Cain, as a keeper of the ground, brings produce, a sacrifice of his produce to God. And from the story, we don't know exactly why, but God says he has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't for Cain's. It wasn't good enough. And, and Cain is really distraught about that. He becomes very, very angry, and he finds the right moment, and he kills his brother Abel. Violence is now a part of the world that man lives in, and we know that all too well. So God confronts Cain. He tells him that it's not going to go well for him. There is a punishment that Cain is going to endure. The ground will be less productive and Cain will wander as a fugitive. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Cain says to the Lord, this punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But while God has punished Cain, we need to also see that there is grace. So God says, I'm going to put a mark on you and it's going to be a mark of protection. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any should find him and attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in Nod, east of Eden. As we read on from the story of Cain and Abel, the, the story sort of accelerates in a downward spiral. We read in Genesis 4, verse 23, about a man named Lamech. And Lamech gets to himself more than one wife, and he also kills a man. He murders and he doesn't just murder, it seems like he brags about it to his wives. 
Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He presumes on the grace of God in his wickedness and violence. It's an example of the acceleration of the downward spiral that's taking place in mankind, leading to this sad statement in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Have you ever... um, like spent a lot of time creating an event or maybe you physically made something, you have the ability to create with your hands and you you made something, put a lot of energy into it, a lot of thought, only to have other people sort of disrespect it, not appreciate it for what it is or just totally ruin it so that it all unravels. If you've ever experienced that, then you you get just a tiny glimpse of, of what... God is experiencing here. Remember, he created man to reflect his glory. He gave him this privilege to rule over creation. He, he, he met with man. He, there's this intimate relationship between God and man, and it's all unraveled so that God has come to this point where he's grieving. If you've ever wondered, you know, how, how much does God care about us? We've already seen he cared so, mo- so much about us that he created a world that's so finely tuned that we can live on it. It just speaks that God created this world for mankind. That's how much he values us. And now we see again from a more emotional side that, that we know how much God values us because we don't live according to his design. When we don't live according to his plan, he is deeply grieved. What you do, how you live matters to God. He wants you to live in his right ways and to experience the life has for you. And when you don't, it deeply grieves him. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. So as we read on in the story, God decides to do a redo. He's going to blot out the human race while at the same time keeping alive a representative named Noah who was righteous in his eyes. And God's going to start all over again. Genesis 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, and you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Of course, you know the story. If you've gone to church at all when you were a kid, it was probably one of the top five stories that were told. You know, Noah and the ark, and you probably created a craft with an ark. And, you know, we all know it. The story is not really about Noah. The story is about God. God's grace, God's mercy. That he didn't give up on the human race. He didn't give up on mankind completely. He wants to do a redo. Let's start over. God has this vision of flourishing for the human race. And he wants to give it another try. Let's do it again. Jen Wilkin in her book, Women of the Word, says the story of Noah may hold meaning for us apart from the reference to the big story. Like if we look at Noah and his righteousness and how he responded to the culture around him. But when linked to the big story, this smaller story takes on the depth and richness it was intended to have. In relationship to the meta-narrative, the story of Noah comes into focus as a story about God. God creates, God orders, 
God preserves life. God provides a deliverer. God alone can save. It's a new beginning. So much like the Garden of Eden. And when you look at Genesis 9 and you compare, this is the story of Noah after the flood, and you look at the, some of the phraseology between Genesis 9 and Genesis 1, you see this uncanny parallel. Be fruitful and multiply, Noah. Where have we heard that? Genesis chapter 1. Rule over creation. Creation will fear you. Where have we heard that? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. And here's what you can eat. Where have we heard that? In the Genesis story, in Noah's story. It's a new beginning. Do you see what God's doing? Let's start over. This is a redo. I want this to work. I want you, Noah, to create a family that will image me and bring glory to God. Sorry to use a sports illustration, but to me it's applicable and painful. We have a hockey team around here that we, we love and we like and we want them to succeed, succeed and flourish. But every fall, you know, we, we have a training camp and we have some new players and we have a new coach or a new manager and we go, this will be the year. It's going to go well for us this year. But it doesn't. And then the next year, it's the same thing. Oh, yeah, you know, this year it's going to be different. We got a few more new players. We switch things around a bit. But it doesn't. And I bet you you're still hoping for next year or the year after. So it is with Noah. God's hoping for this restart, this redo, but we read in a few verses later in Genesis 9, 20, Noah's begun to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard and we find him drunk and his son doing something shameful with him. We read on and we see some genealogies and a few generations later after Noah, these people have multiplied, which is good, but what are they multiplying? See, they were created to build a garden, to, to plant gardens, build culture, build cities. And the people are doing that. They're multiplying. They're, they're creating culture. They're expanding. But why are they doing it? See, they were created to be in God's image, to do this for God, to do this in relationship with God. But we find in Genesis 11, as they come together, they're doing it to make a name for themselves. One of the great effects of reading the Old Testament is that we get a really clear picture of the nature and the extent of evil. We get a picture of what sin is really like and how devastating it is. And while sin came from the outside in the garden, we see how prevalent it becomes in the inside of man. It's pervasive. It's in us individually. It's in us as a society, as a, as a corporate existence. Chris Wright, in, in his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, says, in short, the Old Testament portrays to us a very big problem to which there needs to be a very big answer if there is one at all. So in Genesis 11, we, we've come to realize story after story that things are getting dark, they're getting darker, they're getting darker. Even after a new start, it's getting darker and getting darker. Can there be any hope? It's bad. Something radical needs to happen. It's like this. And I speak from personal experience. You have a vehicle that 
is starting to blow smoke and it's making noises. And I mean, in, inside you hope, I hope this will be cheap to fix. I hope it'll be just like an oil change or something like that. But you bring your car in to the mechanic and he has a look at it and you know when he's shaking his head, this is not going to be pretty. And he tells you that you've overheated your engine so badly that the head gasket has warped and it can't even be planed or fixed. Like the solution is you've got to have a whole new engine. It needs to be radical. When we flash forward in scripture again and we look in the New Testament after Jesus to the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he says this about all human nature outside of a relationship with God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's exactly the picture of Adam. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Let me say that again. Among whom we all, there is no exception, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. It wasn't outside of us. It was inside of us by nature like the rest of mankind. Outward change, conformity will never do it. And we see that as we arrive at the end of Genesis 11 with the question, what hope can there possibly be? And we've seen if our hope is in mankind, if it's in the righteousness of one person, it's hopeless. It it can be mankind pulling themselves up and saying, okay, this time it's going to work. And perhaps you know that in your own life, in your own story. We can't just muster up our strength and our will and this time it'll work. We've been brought to the end of ourselves at Genesis 11. There needs to be a greater solution. And there is, because this is not our story so much as it is God's story. And I'm so grateful for that. You know how when you go to a movie and like you're only an hour into the movie and it seems like the movie is wrapping up? You know it's not over, don't you? Because you just look at the clock, oh. There's got to be lots more that's going to happen here. And so it it is for us. We're only in Genesis chapter 11 now, and there's a lot more material to cover. We know there's got to be something more. And there surely is. That's why the story is so great. Something has to happen. There's got to be more to come. There's a line in one of the songs we sing here at Central Heights Church. It goes, my sin was great. Your love was greater. So though we've seen in this little glimpse into Genesis that sin runs deep, so the mercy and the grace of God we'll find is deeper. And God, because of his mercy, will not give up. He will not go away in his love for humankind. It will be Jesus. It will be Jesus. I can't leave you at the end of Genesis 11 with no hope. We know, and if you've read forward and if you're familiar with the story, we know this will all get to Jesus. Jesus will die for our sins. But why was it so drastic? Why something so so drastic has to happen? Because of this? Because our sin was so deep? Because it had to be radical? Because it had to be greater than the depth of our sin? 
So Jesus goes to the cross. He rises from the dead. He, and through that, we can be forgiven. We can have a redo with God. And Jesus, by his victory, frees us not only from our past sins, but from the power of sin in the present. It will be Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you know that part of the story and you've lived in it for a long time, maybe even many years. Can I just say, it's good for us to hear about our past so that we can be stirred up for the magnitude of what we have in our present. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, chapter seven. It's about Jesus being invited over for dinner or lunch to one of the religious people's homes. His name is Simon. And when Jesus gets there, the usual customs are ignored. Uh, Simon does not provide a servant to clean the dust off Jesus' feet. There's no water, there's no towel, there's no servant doing that. It's really quite a scorn when you think about it. But there's a woman there that the gospel makes us aware of. And she has this jar of oil And probably seeing that Jesus' feet have not been taken care of, she wets his feet with her tears first. And then there's no towel around to wipe that off, so she takes her hair and she dries off his feet and the dirt with it so they can be clean. And then she breaks this expensive jar of oil so that a fragrance, so that he can smell good in the company of his hosts. And Jesus says to her, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. This is before he's gone to the cross. This is before he has risen from the dead. But see, she knew if she could just get to Jesus. The Bible calls her a sinner. In other words, the society would have recognized her as a woman of really bad reputation. But she knows if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just be in his presence, that huge gap that exists in my life between a relationship with God and all the atrocious things that I, can, that I have done, that can be fixed in this person. And knowing that, she's extravagant in her worship with Jesus. Do we know how great God's grace is to us? Do we know the depth of our sin? Without Jesus, where we would be, objects of wrath, what our future would look like, that when we're there on the moment when we might go into the next life and graduate, what our, what our place would be, what our prospect would be for the future, or do we know the grace of God that he saved us into through Jesus? A couple of weeks ago in our staff devotions, we had a woman named Jenny come and share her story. I didn't know it, but one of our staff members did. And so she came and she just shared with us her, her story, a pretty dark past. Uh, she'd been a mother of children and been completely irresponsible because of her drug habit, lied to her family, was deceitful, um, just couldn't break it, uh, her addiction. But finally, through Jesus, found freedom, not just from her habit, but found freedom And the inside of her, free to be in a relationship with God. And as she told the story, she started crying. And she says, this always happens. Every time. Why? Because she knows how much she's been forgiven from. And how great that gap has been that Jesus has bridged so that she can come into a living relationship with God. And can I just finish by saying if you're not here this morning with a living relationship with Jesus he invites you into that 
that through what he's done, you can have your sins forgiven and you can start a redo, a new life in God, with God, empowered by his Holy Spirit so that you can now live differently because of what he's done. He's gonna live that through you. You're invited into that. But for those of us that have lived this story for many, many years, can I just say it's good for us to revisit this and then remind ourselves of the grace of God that we've received and as a result of that, to pour out extravagant worship back to our Savior. And that expresses itself in so many ways. I think it expresses itself even as we gather together that we worship him with our voices and our our bodies and we say, God, thank you. We worship you. All our affection, all our devotion, we pour out on the feet of Jesus. And we worship him with our lives and the way we relate to our family and the way we relate to our employer or employees. We worship him with every part of us. We bring ourselves completely under his rule so that God, through the forgiveness that he's done for us, can now again recommission us to be those who co-labor with him to bring glory to his name as people who've been recreated in the image of God, empowered by his spirit. Let me pray for us.